Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon. Today, we are continuing our sermon series titled, A Simpler Way, and we'll be looking at the text, Matthew 3, 13-17, and the posture of dependence. Caleb first looks at why Jesus needed to be baptized and how it demonstrates Jesus' dependence on the Father and the Holy Spirit. Then, we look at how the Holy Spirit creates a posture of dependence in us, through waiting, affirming our identity as children of Christ, and leading us into the wilderness. In the end, we are invited to stop depending on our world and are on our own assessment of ourselves, and instead, trust and depend on Jesus. Good morning. Oh, you're awake. That's good. (laughs) Would you join me in prayer uh, before we jump in this morning? Lord Jesus, you told us that where two or three of us gather in your name, you are there among us. You are present this morning, and you have something to say to each of our hearts. Lord, would you open us to receive from your word this morning? Would you open us to hear what you have to say? Would your presence never be common or taken for granted? I pray you would break off any unhealthy familiarity we have with your word. I pray we would hear it anew this morning. And I ask this all in your mighty name. Amen. So we're just getting underway in a new series that we've called A Simpler Way. And in this series, we're considering the invitation of Jesus to come to him, to take his yoke upon us, to learn from him, and ultimately to find rest for our souls. And to do that, we're going to emphasize the practices of Jesus that enabled him to live out of this place of deep connection with the Father. And we're examining how exactly these practices or spiritual disciplines, you could call them, how these actually lead us into a greater experience of God's rest. And so we're gonna look specifically at the disciplines of the Sabbath. We're gonna look at solitude, fasting, and feasting. So these are just a few of the spiritual disciplines, but these are the ones we're gonna focus on. But first today, we're actually talking about dependence. And dependence is not so much a practice as it is a posture that we take before the living God. Dependence is about a posture of humility before our Father, acknowledging that we can do nothing apart from the Holy Spirit. And dependence on the Holy Spirit actually needs to be the foundation for all the other disciplines or practices. Because when we undertake spiritual disciplines apart from a posture of dependence, we begin quickly to to think that our, um, oh sorry, We, we can quickly become weary and burdened again by these disciplines and postures because we begin to attach our sense of rightness before God to our ability to follow and practice these disciplines. And now Jesus doesn't just teach us with his words, 
but he models things for us through his life. And in the life of Jesus, we see this dependence uh, on the voice of the Father that is made known by the Holy Spirit. And so our text for this morning is in Matthew chapter three, verses 13 to 17, and I'm gonna read verse, sorry, chapter four, verse one as well. If you wanna follow along, I'm reading from the New Living Translation this morning. Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John, but John tried to talk him out of it. I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said, so why are you coming to me? But Jesus said, it should be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him. After his baptism, Jesus came up out of the water and the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. So we're gonna get into some observations around how this text relates to the theme of dependence in just a minute, but first, it's worth asking the question, why is Jesus being baptized? John's baptism was for the purpose of repentance. It was identifying yourself with the nearness of the coming kingdom of God. And we know Jesus has nothing to repent for. So what is going on here? John even protests to baptizing Jesus, but Jesus claims that this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. I think Philippians chapter two helps us uh, gain some understanding to what is happening in the baptism of Jesus. And this really hits home in Philippians chapter two, verse seven. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. So if you get into reading Philippians chapter two, it tells us that although Jesus has and always will be divine, the son of God, the second member of the Holy Trinity, this text tells us that he didn't access his divine right to power in order to live out his earthly life and ministry Rather, Jesus lived a life of dependence on the voice and word of the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. So at least one part of what's going on in this baptism text, I think, is that Jesus is actually receiving a new baptism of power from God that is going to enable him to fulfill his mission on the earth. And all of Jesus' earthly ministry was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And what's really interesting is in his life, we can see Jesus making use of a huge range of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are listed later in the New Testament. So next time you're reading the Gospels, this is when things really changed for me when I understood this. But when you read of a miracle or a prophecy, you can stop and ask yourself, what spiritual gift is Jesus using at that moment? 
because Jesus is depending on the Holy Spirit for all the things that he's doing. So when Jesus prophesies about the future, he's using a spiritual gift of prophecy given by the Holy Spirit. When he knows the secrets of people's hearts, he's using a word of knowledge that's been given from the Holy Spirit. And Jesus lived in dependence. He didn't grasp and seize and claim his own divine right to power, even though he's, he could have. And in fact, this is exactly what the devil tempts him to do a little bit later in the story. But even though Jesus was equal with God, he refused to consider equality with God something to grasp at. He depended solely on the power that was released to him from the Father. And I think this is critical to our understanding of Jesus and the the Christian life. Because the fact that Jesus lived in dependence is why he can say what he says uh, later in John chapter 14, Verse 12, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works that I have done and even greater works because I'm going to be with the Father. Do we believe him? He said this because he knew the power that he was accessing would also one day be made available to the disciples and to us through the Holy Spirit. And I want to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at how the Holy Spirit taught Jesus the way of dependence on the Father. And just as Renus told us last week, we are invited into this relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit instructs us in the same ways that he instructed Jesus. And this is how we become like Jesus. This is how we will do what he did, and perhaps even the greater things that he talked about. So let me give you three observations this morning about how the Holy Spirit works to produce this posture of dependence in our lives. So these are right out of our text today. Uh, Number one, he teaches us to wait. Number two, He affirms our identity as children of God. And number three, he leads us into the wilderness. First, he teaches us to wait. Waiting is a critical lesson for us to learn, and we're not well conditioned to it in our culture. We like instant results. But in our passage today, Jesus has already been waiting for 30 years 30 years of his life have been spent waiting on the Father's timing for his ministry to begin. So other than wowing a few people in the temple with his knowledge at a young age, we don't have any record of Jesus performing significant acts of ministry in the first 30 years of his life. He was waiting on the Holy Spirit. And waiting in the biblical sense is is not a time of passive disengagement, waiting is active. It means preparing ourselves for the land that God has promised to lead us into. And throughout scripture, there's a major war going on internally within, a, within human beings. And the war that's going on within all of us 
is will we wait and trust or will we grasp and seize? And this is a major tension in the Bible and in our lives as well. Will we try to make it happen on our own for ourselves or will we trust God to provide what he has promised? Jesus learned to wait on the Holy Spirit and his ability to wait reveals how deep his roots of trust in God went. And the Holy Spirit wants to grow these same roots of faith and trust in our lives. And so he teaches us to wait on the Father's timing. In the very next passage, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, we discover that all the temptations he faces have to do with seizing power now on his own terms. Turn these stones into bread. Use your own power now. Provide for yourself. Jump off this building. Force God to act on your behalf right now. Manipulate God and get him to act for you. And finally, Satan says, worship me and I'll give you my power right now. And you won't have to wait on God to glorify you and you won't have to suffer and you won't have to go to the cross. Do you see this? All the temptations leveled at Jesus have to do with power and with not waiting on God's plan and God's timing. And we face these same temptations and the Holy Spirit wants to teach us not to grasp and seize, but to wait and trust and follow Jesus' example. And the greatest example we have of Jesus waiting is a part of the Easter season that we're in right now. On the cross, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. I trust you, Father, even with my death. And then Jesus waits in the tomb. Even in death, he waits and trusts, waiting on the Father to bring new life out of the ashes of the cross. Waiting on God is imperative to overcoming evil and living a spirit-filled life. And if we are following Jesus, the Holy Spirit will lead us into seasons of waiting so that we can learn dependence on him. And this brings us to point number two. He affirms our identity. So what is the Holy Spirit teaching us to wait for? We're not just waiting for the sake of waiting. We're waiting to hear the voice of the Father who wants to affirm us in our new identity. Now theologically speaking, this is called the ministry of assurance. And it's actually one of the major jobs of the Holy Spirit according to the Bible. It's right out of Romans 8, verses 15 and 16. This is what it says. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. In our text from this morning, the father says, this is my son 
with whom I am well pleased. And the Father longs to speak these same words over you and over me, and that requires we actually wait in his presence long enough to be able to hear him speak. We have to quiet ourselves before him, and that takes time and intention. Jesus says, come to me. Come get into my presence. Wait and listen long enough to hear what Jesus is speaking over your life. And this brings us back to the yoke of Jesus. If you missed last week, uh, Renus introduced it last week, and we've rooted this series in Matthew 11, 28 to 30. And I'm just gonna read it again for us, and we're gonna bring it up uh, all throughout this series. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I want to talk a little bit more about the imagery that Jesus is using here. And I'm going to build off what Renus uh, shared with us last week. But I think one of the major things that Jesus is implying in this text is his ownership over us and over our lives. All right, this might surprise many of you, but I'm actually not a farmer. Um, Neither is Renus. (laughs) I was born in the urban jungle, the concrete jungle. Uh, City slicker, some some of my farm friends would call me. I haven't spent much time on farms, but I have a little bit, mostly with my my friend Johnny. You might know him, he plays guitar here sometimes, he's pretty popular. Um, But his his family owns and works with cattle, and so here's a picture from a trip to Johnny's that I dug up, I went back in in the archives to find this, and this was really cool, so we showed up at at the the ranch, and um, there was a horse, two bison, and a cow, just all standing together when we pulled in, and it was like the welcome wagon. So we drove over, uh, and I got a picture of them. That was pretty exciting. Um, So I was thinking about this idea of the yoke, and I went on Kijiji, and I found an oxen yoke. It's only $1,200. Maybe I can get a loan. It seems like a good price to me. I don't know. So it's actually in Nova Scotia, but maybe they'll ship it to me, so then I'll have to pay shipping. Maybe I'll start a GoFundMe if you guys want to help me get my hands on this. Okay, so I don't know much about farming, but I can imagine if I get my hands on this yoke, I show up at Johnny's place, and I slap it onto a couple of cows, I think somebody might get upset with me. Now, they might be impressed that somehow I own a yoke, but I'm pretty sure they wouldn't be impressed if it was on two of their cows. Surely someone would come along and remind me, hey, those aren't your cows. But what if I buy the cows? What if I purchase them? Now I can put my yoke on them because they're mine. Jesus is claiming that we are his. We belong to him. And this is the only reason that we can receive his yoke. The theologian John Stott used to say that we belong to God three times over. 
God created us, that's one. He bought us back from death and sin. He paid for us with his blood, that's two. And now he lives within us through the Holy Spirit. We are his home and his dwelling, that's three. In Matthew 11, Jesus is making a claim of ownership over us and over our lives. He is saying that we belong to him, we are his children bought and paid for, and that means he's the only one who gets to tell us who we really are. And Jesus connects this, our belonging to him, directly to rest for our souls. So when I know deep down in my heart who I belong to, who has purchased me and paid for me, then my soul can finally rest. And when we learn to wait on the Holy Spirit, we create a context that allows us to hear the voice of the Father claiming us as his own. And when we take the yoke of Jesus upon us, when we pick up the disciplines or the practices, like Sabbath, solitude, fasting and feasting, the whole point of these things is to remind us who we belong to. So when we practice the Sabbath, we are reminded we don't belong to our work. We belong to Jesus. When we practice solitude before God and we get alone with him, we are reminded we don't belong to other people's opinions of us. We belong to Jesus. When we fast, we are reminded that we don't belong to our appetites. We belong to Jesus. And when we feast, we are reminded that we don't belong to the things we're still lacking. We belong to Jesus. The yoke is what reminds us who we belong to. And the Holy Spirit affirms our new identity and that our belonging is never in question. We are bought and paid for by Jesus himself. Point number three, he leads us into the wilderness. Matthew four verse one said, and then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, the wilderness is another major recurring biblical image. And we know that this 40 days of Jesus in the wilderness links us back to Israel's first 40 years of wandering in the desert. But the theme of wilderness actually begins even earlier than that. In the Garden of Eden, it's this place of God's order his order rules and his order reigns. And in the garden, humans have unbroken relationship with God. And we have full faith and trust in him and his order. But then humans choose to grasp and seize instead of waiting on God. And we're sent out of the context of a loving relationship contained within God's established order for life. We're sent east of Eden into the wilderness. And there are options in the human response to being exposed to the chaos that is east of Eden, this wild and untamed place. And the first is simply to return to God, to depend on him, 
to trust him, that he will keep us safe in this new and dangerous reality. But humans now have a deep-seated mistrust, and this is what the garden has exposed. And so humans begin to build their own power, in their own power, strongholds or dwelling places that provide <clears throat> the illusion of safety and control in dangerous and unpredictable environments. And this is what we call the city. This is what the biblical authors call Babylon. And Babylon is deceptive because it convinces us that we have more power and control over chaos and nature than we actually do. And this is where the wilderness encounter comes in because the wilderness exposes our true weakness, frailty, and vulnerability. And here's a quote from uh, Mark Sayers. He's a pastor. He wrote a book called A Non-Anxious Presence. And he's talking about the wilderness here. The ancient Israelites and their pagan neighbors agreed that any god worth their salt could battle against the chaos of nature and win. A human exposed to the chaos and danger of nature is reminded that they are not God. Our vulnerability and our mortality is exposed. Our lack of control and our powerlessness is laid bare. Now because we've grown accustomed to Babylon, we see the wilderness as chaotic and dangerous and scary, but biblically speaking, it's always the place of encounter with the living God. Because it leads us once again to take the posture that's required to meet him. And in our spiritual lives, the wilderness is any season that takes us beyond our dependence on particular things, things other than God. The Holy Spirit leads us into the wilderness, the place where things we've been depending on for identity and belonging and security begin to fail us. Deuteronomy 8.2 tells us the purpose of the wilderness in the spiritual life. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. The wilderness reveals what is in our hearts. I'm just gonna say that again. The wilderness reveals what is in our hearts. But God already knows what's in our hearts, doesn't he? So who is receiving this revelation of our hearts? The wilderness reveals to us what we actually believe about ourselves and God. When the things we've been depending on for security, identity, and belonging are stripped away, what is really in our hearts is revealed. And to many of us, what I'm describing might sound cruel, and it could sound like God just throws us into the deep end and finds out what we're gonna do, see what we're really made of. But this reveals a broken and distorted perspective of who God is and what he wants to accomplish in the wilderness. Remember, we are the ones who build our houses on the sand. We agree to get identity, 
security and belonging from temporary things. And this is the result of trying to fix eternal problems with temporary solutions. Eventually, the solutions dissolve and we're left in the wilderness. And what is the purpose of having these things revealed to us in the wilderness? It's not to shame us, that's not who God is. It's because God wants to heal our broken and distorted perspectives about who he is and what it means to be his child. I wanna suggest to you that right now, we collectively are experiencing a season in the wilderness. And many things on the surface look normal again, but some very real things that brought us a sense of safety and security in the world have been completely dismantled. And there is no going back to however we felt prior to March 2020, there just isn't. We've seen behind the curtain now and we know that much of our sense of safety and security is actually built on sand. And if the winds change again, we know we're gonna be in trouble. And I think all of us are wrestling with this in our own ways, but I found myself this week in a more acute wilderness moment. And it felt like the number of events, the number of things out of my control, the scales tipped to feeling really out of control, and I felt overwhelmed, and I felt nothing is going the way I hoped or expected it would. And what came up for me was this feeling, this feeling that God was completely removed from my experience, like he was just watching and throwing things my way and seeing what I would do, seeing what I could handle. And I know and I preach a different God than this. I believe in a different God than this. I know in my head that that's not who God is, but this is what was coming out of my heart. In the wilderness, it doesn't matter what we say we believe or what we think we believe. The wilderness reveals our hearts. And I believe this reality of wilderness is illustrated best for us in the life of the disciple Peter. I love Peter, I really do. He's passionate and zealous, and whatever's in his heart in the moment always seems to find its way out of his mouth. It's like he can't stop it, he's so passionate. Peter makes these bold claims and statements about Jesus and his devotion to him. He steps out on the water, trusting that Jesus will empower him, that he'll be able to walk on top of it. Initially, Peter doesn't want Jesus to wash his feet, but then Jesus says it's necessary, and suddenly he wants his whole body washed. <clears throat> now the boldest thing that Peter says is right before Jesus predicts that Peter will deny him. Peter says, I'm ready to die with you. Die with me? Jesus responds with a prophetic word from the Spirit and says, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. You see, you and I are actually a lot like Peter. Peter thinks he knows what's in his heart, 
And so he keeps making these bold declarations, believing that they're really coming from the deepest part of who he is. But Jesus knows that Peter's picture of God is still distorted. It's warped and it's twisted. And he still thinks God is going to bring his kingdom through violence. He believes he's ready to die for Jesus because he has an idea about what that means. I think he actually was willing to die, but he wanted to die as a glorified hero of a violent revolution. But Jesus doesn't battle against flesh and blood. He's going to the cross to die the death of a criminal, bearing our curse of sin and dying in our place. Now we think we know our hearts as well. We think we know what we believe and what we have committed ourselves to. But Jesus is the only one who truly knows our hearts. And he already knows what the wilderness moment of the cross is about to reveal to Peter. That his picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus is going to do is warped and distorted. And Jesus knows that our wilderness moments will reveal this very same thing to us as well. But there's more going on in this story because there's actually something underneath the denial, underneath the warped and distorted pictures of God that we carry in our hearts. These things are actually just chaff that has to be burned away. There is gold underneath all of this junk, and Jesus is searching for the gold. Do you know what the gold is? Will you turn with me to John chapter 21? I'm gonna read from verse 15. And this is the story from after Peter's denial. John 21, verse 15. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. The Holy Spirit leads us into the wilderness. He leads us away from all the things we've connected our sense of security, identity, and belonging to. And this painful experience reveals what's in our hearts, starting with the chaff, the distorted images, and pictures we carry about who God is. But as these are burned away, what gets revealed is the gold that Jesus is after. It's our sincere and true love for him. 
And I love this shift that we see in Peter. It's a shift from saying, Lord, let me tell you what's in my heart, to Lord, you are the only one who knows what is within me. It's a posture of dependence. It's a posture of humility before the Lord. And Jesus chose Peter because he knew all along that underneath all the chaff, all the distortions and twisted ideas about God's kingdom, there was a pure love for God waiting to be revealed. And Jesus has chosen you and I for the very same reason. He is the searcher of every heart. He is the only one who sees and knows what's really in our hearts. And he wants you to know this morning that it's your love for him that he's really after. That's the gold he's looking for. That's why we're in the wilderness and everything else is coming up, that's coming up is just dust that he promises to blow away. We are utterly dependent on this Jesus. This Jesus who teaches us to wait on him, who affirms that we belong to him, and who leads us into the wilderness to reveal our love for him. Jesus is asking us this morning to stop depending on our own assessments of ourselves and to start believing in what he sees in us. I'm gonna invite the band to come back up and uh, I think the kids are gonna come back. We're gonna take communion together. So kids, if you wanna find your parents and grab a seat, let everyone get settled. So this communion meal is a meal of dependence. And in the wilderness, God provided daily bread for Israel. And that was actually a picture of Jesus. Jesus is our daily bread. And he offers his life to us through this meal. And I really wanna invite us into a particular response this morning that fits with the things that we've been talking about. So we're gonna run communion in the usual way. Um, The servers are gonna be up, up front here, and you can come down the center aisle to receive your communion, and you can return to your chair by the side aisles, and then just hold on to your gluten free bread and your juice, and wait until everyone is seated and we're all gonna take this meal together. But before you come, I want to invite you to first wait on the Holy Spirit. You don't need to rush up here. Jesus isn't going anywhere. Just wait on the Spirit a little bit. Wait until you hear an affirmation of belonging to Jesus. Let him speak. Let him tell you that you're his. And finally, respond out of this place of love for him. Let your love for him move you up out of your chair to come down and receive 
what he's offering you this morning. Then when we're all seated again, I'm gonna lead us as we partake. Let me pray for this time. Lord Jesus, thank you for your example. Thank you for your sacrifice for us. Thank you that you waited, you waited right up until the cross and right up until the resurrection, you waited for the Father's plan. And for that reason, we enter your presence without shame or guilt. We come before a holy God dressed in your robe of righteousness, Jesus, all because of what you've done. And Holy Spirit, I ask you come right now and affirm our belonging to you. Reveal what's really in our hearts, that we have a love for you that is buried under all the distortions and all the chaff. Holy Spirit, come and breathe on us this morning and reveal these things. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more resources to help further your study throughout the week, you can go to vbchurch.ca forward slash sermons. Mm -hmm.